Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for your blessing to be upon us now through your word, that as your word goes forth, that it might work upon us with mighty power, that we might trust Jesus all the more and be conformed more and more to his image, all through the working of your Holy Spirit. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What should a Christian worship service look like? I realize people outside the church don't care about that question, but we inside the church should care very much about that question. What should a Christian worship service look like? I've heard a lot of different answers to that question through the years. There are some who think that the service really is about evangelism. And so when we come together, everything we do should appeal to the unbeliever as much as possible. Uh, It should look and feel like a sanitized version of pop culture. Nothing in the service should offend an unbeliever or make him feel uncomfortable or seem unfamiliar to him. That's one way people have answered that question. Uh, Still others have said that the service is about having an emotional experience. Music and other techniques can be used to conjure up certain feelings. It's all about attaining a spiritual buzz, a sort of mountaintop experience. And so maybe the worship service starts to look a lot like a concert. But of course, in saying it's about an emotional experience, we really open the door to emotional manipulation. You play just the right set of chords and all that, and you can make people feel certain things. There's no doubt. How much of this emotion is rooted in truth? How much of it produces lasting change? Those are questions I'd have for those who want to make the service all about an emotional experience. Still others say it's about education. The sanctuary is really a lecture hall. It's about cramming as much information as possible into people's heads. Uh, On this view, we don't really use our bodies to worship God. In fact, the whole purpose of your body is to get your brain to church. Worship is reduced to nothing more than a teaching time, and so it looks and feels like a classroom. The sermon is all important. Everything else in the service is really just filler. It doesn't matter that much. The Lord's Supper is not a regular part of the service. Now, to be clear, I do think that there is an element of truth in each one of these potential answers. I do think worship has an evangelistic element, though it's not by making the unbeliever feel right at home in the worship of God. Rather, it's because unbelievers can come to worship and get convicted of their sin more than anything anything else. That's it. In 1 Corinthians 14, that's what Paul says he hopes will happen with an unbeliever who attends the assembly. Uh, I certainly think emotions and experiences are vital to worship. There's nothing stoic about worship, uh, though I'd also say that the emotions we experience in worship Worship must be shaped by truth and must be rooted in truth. There to be a byproduct rather than the goal of the event. And certainly worship must include teaching and training. Worship is about formation and that includes imparting doctrine. There's a lot of emphasis in the pastoral epistles about teaching doctrine to the people of God. So even if the sanctuary is not a classroom, we certainly come to worship expecting to learn, expecting to grow. We come that we might absorb truth and wisdom from the word of God. But I think all of these answers miss the real point of the worship service. Go back to our original question. What should a Christian service of worship look like? It should look like heaven. That's the answer. That's the answer scripture gives us. It should look like heaven. Our worship on earth should mimic 
and mirror the worship taking place in heaven. We want to do God's will on earth as it's done in heaven. And that means we want to worship God on earth as he is being worshipped in heaven. Now, somebody might say, oh, that sounds really nice, but how are you going to do it? How are you going to pull that off? How do we know what worship in heaven looks like? Well, there's an answer to that question given to us in the scriptures. God has shown us the heavenly liturgy, especially in the book of Revelation. Now, let's talk about Revelation for just a minute here. I'm not preaching a a series on Revelation or anything like that, but I think this might help you sort of get your bearings for what the book of Revelation is about. And if this is new to you, I'm happy to talk about this more with you afterwards. The book of Revelation is many things. Unfortunately, the church today misunderstands many of them. Uh, When I have taught on Revelation in the past, I have uh, tended to summarize it in four ways. Revelation is four things. First, Revelation is a practical book. Yes, it is practical. It shows the church how to overcome in the face of opposition. The original audience of the book of Revelation faced two enemies, a persecuting state, which was Rome, and a a, a false church, Judaism. Revelation showed Christians in the first century how to conquer both, how to deal with that opposition, how to rise above that opposition, how how to conquer that opposition. So it's a practical book. Second, Revelation is a picture book. It is given to us in visions. It's written in symbols and images. You should think of biblical symbolism as a language of its own, just like English or French. And just like English or or French have to be learned, so it is with the language of biblical symbolism. And the way to learn the grammar and vocabulary of biblical symbolism, the way to learn the grammar and vocabulary of Revelation's imagery, is to go back to its source in the Old Testament. Because really, the whole book of Revelation is a patchwork of Old Testament allusions and echoes. The whole fabric of the book is woven together with Old Testament symbols and images. It's like John took the Old Testament, put it in a blender, stirred it up, and out comes this new combination of images from the Old Testament, but now put together in a new kind of way. Revelation cannot be understood apart from the Old Testament. Third, Revelation is a prophecy book. Now we're getting maybe on a little more familiar uh, terrain. But the prophecies Revelation foretells are largely in our past. See, John was writing to a first century audience. And John tells his first century audience he is revealing things that must shortly take place. They must shortly take place. John is writing in the 60s of the first century, and he's pointing to the definitive transition from the old covenant to the new covenant that would take place in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed and Jesus was publicly vindicated as God's Messiah. So from 30 A.D. when Jesus began his public ministry to 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed, that 40-year period, that generation, they lived through a redemptive historical shift as the Old Covenant was transformed into the New Covenant. The book of Acts tells that story, tells the story of that transition from an earthly perspective. The book of Revelation tells the story of that transition from a heavenly perspective. And so you can think of Revelation this way. Revelation is a tale of two cities. It's a story of two cities, two women, and two temples. 
Revelation shows us that the old Jerusalem has become a harlot and her temple has been left desolate. Meanwhile, the church is revealed in this book as the true Jerusalem, the true bride, the true temple. Or here's another way to think about it. Three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record what is called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus gives a prophecy about the, <clears throat> the, the fall of Jerusalem. He looks at the temple with his disciples, and he says, not one stone will be left upon another. And they ask, when will these things be? And he says, this generation will not pass away before these things happen. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that. John does not. What John gives us instead of the Olivet Discourse is a whole book that deals with that event, a whole book on that topic, the destruction of the temple, and with it, the end of the Old Covenant. So the book of Revelation deals with this shift from old creation to new creation. That's the prophetic theme of the book. But fourth and finally, Revelation is a prayer book. The whole book is a liturgy. And so in chapter 1, John tells us he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. This whole vision, this whole book is given to him on the Lord's Day, okay? on, on the Christian day of worship. It is a Lord's Day liturgy. And the flow of the book follows the order of the liturgy. We talked about this last week. Chapter 1 is a call to worship with this vision of the exalted Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 is a call to the churches to confess their sin. Chapters 4 and 5 record the ascension into heaven with a burst of praise as John joins in with the worship of heaven. And then in the next several chapters, the word is read and preached. That's depicted by the scroll or the book that's being unsealed and the trumpets that are sounding. Chapter 19 then is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's, of course, the Lord's Supper. And then the final chapters record the church being sent out with a benediction to take the gospel, that is, the, the river of life, out to the nations so that earth might be heavenized. That's the flow of the book. It's basically the flow of the liturgy. And this is what we're most interested in this morning. Revelation as a heavenly liturgy. Revelation as a prayer book. In fact, it's not just uh, what John sees. It's not just that what John sees when he ascends to heaven is a model for the church's worship. It's not like John sees what's going on and then comes back to report it to us. No, it's that our worship actually becomes a participation in the worship of heaven. That's the point of the book, to show us that in worship we ascend in the he- in, into the heavenlies and we join with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. When we are in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, like we are right now, we are joining in with the worship of heaven. And this is, in fact, a truth that is taught all over the New Testament. I actually think when Jesus has his conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and he says the time is coming when God's people will worship him in spirit and in truth, I think that's what he's getting at. We'll no longer worship at the copy of the heavenly reality on earth. We'll worship him in truth, in the true heavenly sanctuary, in the spirit. The book of Hebrews makes this point. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul tells the assembly of Christians gathered for worship. He says, you're not like those old covenant Israelites. You have not come to Mount Sinai like old covenant Israel. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. But he says, you have come to the true Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, 
the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men now made perfect. This is what he says. He says, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant. In fact, I would say Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, that's what I'm summarizing here. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24 is really a good summary of Revelation's liturgical theme. It's all there. The church entering heaven, the church as the new Jerusalem. We gather and we enter the heavenly sanctuary to worship with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, the departed saints. We're in their presence, too, when we worship. That's a theme taught all throughout the New Testament. So here's the key question. When John enters the heavenly sanctuary, when he is invited to join the heavenly liturgy, when he is told, come up here, get into heaven and join us in worship, what does he see? What does that liturgy look like? What does the worship of heaven look like? Well, again, Revelation 4 and 5 answer that question. What are some of the things he sees? Well, he sees a throne. And he sees a lamb who comes to sit on that throne, who is worthy to open the book, who's worthy to unseal the scroll. That book, of course, finds its fulfillment in this lamb who's been slain. That's how he's described, the lamb who has been slain, but is now obviously resurrected and now ascending to rule over all things. So he sees this throne with the lamb reigning in worship. We are arrayed around God's throne. He sees a sea of glass, an ocean of glass. In fact, it's interesting. Every time someone gets a vision of heaven, they see this heavenly sea, this heavenly ocean. When Ezekiel has his vision of heaven, he sees the heavenly sea as well. What is this heavenly sea? It's the firmament that goes all the way back to day two of the creation week when God divided heaven and earth with a watery veil. We sang about it this morning in our opening hymn, Holy, 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 casting down their crowns upon the glassy sea. That's that same imagery. John sees that. He sees angelic creatures associated with the lion, the calf, the eagle, and the man. He sees 24 elders casting down their crowns. Now, some think that these elders are angelic. Others think they are human. Either way, these 24 elders seem to correspond to the 24 priests who served in the temple before God's throne, before the Ark of the Covenant, as described in 1 Chronicles 24 and 25. This is the heavenly counterpart to that earthly priesthood. So he sees uh, these angelic figures, these elders who are uh, leading the worship. There's certainly more here that could be said. We can't go into all the details here. But one thing that I think is crucial for us to notice is this. Heavenly worship, as John witnesses it, heavenly worship is full of symbols and rituals. It is a liturgy. That's what John sees is a liturgy. The liturgy conducted in heaven is an orderly, formal service full of symbolic and ritualized action. What do I mean by that? Well, again, let me give you some examples here. The 24 elders who lead the worship of the Lamb, uh, who is on the throne, these 24 elders are all wearing white robes. Now, why is that? Well, it's because Jesus is apparently wearing a white robe himself. This is one reason why it's traditional in the church for the pastor who officiates the liturgy to be robed in white. Because you see it here in Revelation. In fact, back in chapter 1, when John had his vision of the risen Christ, and then again later in chapter 19, when he has another vision of Christ, he sees Jesus robed with a sash around his waist. 
Robing the pastor in white is a reminder that he is not conducting the service as a private individual. Rather, that robe symbolizes his office. The purpose of that office is to stand in persona Christi, in the place of Christ as Christ's representative, as Christ's spokesman. And so when the pastor baptizes or when he declares absolution or when he distributes the bread and the wine, who's really doing those things? It's not the pastor. He's just a stand-in. It's really Jesus who is doing those things through him. The robe, the vestment, is a symbolic reminder of that. That you ought to receive those words of absolution, the way Calvin put it, he said, as if God himself, as if Jesus himself was speaking from heaven to you. Because that's really what's happening. What else does John see? He sees all kinds of ritualized, coordinated, corporate action. He sees hymns being sung in unison. He sees the elders falling down, kneeling together in a way that must be scripted, since, again, they're doing it together. He hears the worshipers joining together with one voice and prayers that they recite together. It's participatory. There's repetition, not vain repetition, of course, but the angels sing the sanctus, holy, 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 over and over again. John sees all of this happening. John sees worship that includes the body, that involves the body. There's loud singing. There's kneeling. uh, And again, none of this is done in an individualistic way. This is all corporate action. It's communal. It's coordinated. These are the features of the heavenly model for worship. And the thing is, you actually see these same features reflected elsewhere in the New Testament if you're paying attention and you know to look for them. So let me give you an example of this from outside of the book of Revelation. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles have just endured persecution. They're responding to that persecution. And so what do they do? They gather to pray. In the book of Revelation, when they gather to pray, it's like incense going up and then fire falls from heaven. Okay? That's the heavenly perspective. Acts is giving us the earthly perspective. They gather to pray, but listen to how Acts describes the way they pray. This is in Acts 4. They, plural, raised their voice, singular, to God with one accord. And then the prayer that they offer, it's quoted for us in Acts chapter 4, it's mostly straight out of Psalm 2. So you have several people praying together with one voice. How can that happen? Well, they're praying a psalm. And that means either they've got the psalm in front of them in some way, or it means they have memorized the psalm so they can do it together. It's a liturgical action, a ritualized action. Now, I'll tell you this. There was one church in the New Testament that tried to have a very spontaneous free-for-all service. They wanted worship to be full of spontaneity and to be a free-for-all. Of course, you probably know what church I'm talking about. It's the Corinthians. The Corinthians thought that spirit-led worship was supposed to be chaotic and emotionally driven and individualistic and spontaneous and full of novelty. And in his letter, 1 Corinthians... He spends about four chapters correcting them. And at the end of it all, he commands them to do all things in worship decently and in order. That's not a Presbyterian who came up with doing things decently and in order. That is the Apostle Paul. That instruction to do all things decently and in order is in 1 Corinthians 14.40. And again, it comes at the end of a lengthy section in which Paul is teaching on worship and correcting their abuses. And so among the things he tells them, he tells them how to use their gifts in an orderly way. 
how to use their gifts in an ordered way. He insists on a proper order between men and women in the service, and he makes it clear that liturgical leadership must be masculine. He reorders how they do the Lord's Supper so everyone in the church gets to participate because some people were gorging themselves while other people were not getting anything at all because it was so chaotic in the way they were doing the supper. And so he reiterates the rituals that they should use when they come to the Lord's table, when they do the supper. He reviews for them the words they should use over the bread and the wine and the prayers. In fact, he mentions, and this is in all the accounts we have of Uh, of the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper, that there are two prayers of thanksgiving. One prayer for thanksgiving over the bread and another prayer for thanksgiving over the wine. So each element is prayed over. There's a doubling up of the thanksgiving, which is clearly significant, or we wouldn't be told this again and again and again. But you know, it's interesting to me, even the Corinthians, as bad as they were, got some things right that the modern American church tends to get wrong. For example, the Corinthians knew that they should be doing the Lord's Supper every time they gathered as a church. Now, Paul says the way they do it is a disaster. It contradicts the meaning of the supper. But they knew they should be doing the supper every time they came together as the church. There's a lot of churches in America today that don't get that. When Paul commands them to do all things in their worship service in a decent and orderly way, those terms are important. Decently, what does that mean? Paul is saying, do what is fitting, do what is appropriate to the kind of event that worship is. If worship is a participation in the liturgy of heaven, certain protocols follow from that. There are certain things that are appropriate to heaven and certain things that are not. Just like we know that when it comes to a wedding, weddings require a certain kind of formality and decorum and reverence because of the kind of event that it is. I know we're losing that some in our culture. But we know intuitively a wedding's a big deal. There's a kind of formality and decorum that comes with it. There are some things that are fitting and some things that are not. If that's true of a wedding, how much more true would that be of a worship service? That's what Paul means by decently. Do what is fitting for the kind of event this is. And that word orderly is also important. It's basically a term that describes liturgy. It's actually a military term. So you can think of it this way. Soldiers who are marching in lockstep have order. There's a kind of liturgy to the rhythms of soldiers who are walking, who are marching together. This word order describes a set pattern of worship. Paul's whole point is that the church is an army and worship is militant and so it should look like it. An opposing general never looks out at an army he's about to face on the battlefield and he sees them all disorganized and Well, then he knows he's got a victory. But if he sees them well-ordered, well-regimented, marching in lockstep, well, then he knows he's in for a big fight because a well-ordered army is powerful. It's interesting. Paul uses the same word when he's writing to the Colossians. He tells the Colossians in chapter 2, he says, I rejoice to see your good order. I don't know if somebody sent some worship bulletins to Paul from from the Colossians to look at or what. But but the point is, he rejoices in the fact that their community, and especially their worship, is well-ordered. It's well-structured. Paul's like a general inspecting the troops, and he says, when you gather for worship, you're like a well-ordered army. Or or think about this. Consider uh, other ways that we see liturgical order and ritualized forms in the New Testament. 
When the disciples of Jesus came to him and asked, Lord, teach us to pray, what did he do? He did not give them ten principles to use in extemporaneous prayer. No, he gave them a prayer form, a set pattern of words that they could use again and again and again. Now, some people object to set prayers. They object to written prayers. How can we really mean the prayer if we're using somebody else's words? But Jesus didn't have a problem with that. He could give his disciples the words to pray and trust that they would mean those words as they prayed them. And those who object to set prayers to prayer forms, really the same objection could be used against hymns. Hymns are nothing but sung prayers for the most part. And so unless you're willing to reject hymns as well, you really can't object to prayer forms. It's really the same thing. So the modern church's revolt against ritual is really a revolt against the order God calls us to in his word. The revolt against liturgy, the revolt against order in worship is really a revolt against God's word. It's a rejection of the liturgical discipline and order that God desires for his church. Now, it is true in scripture we are given warnings about various things that come with liturgy, that come with ritual. We are warned in Scripture about vain repetition and about empty ritual. And so in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't pray like the pagans who think they'll be heard because they use a lot of words. So don't think just by repeating yourself you're going to be heard. But not all repetition is vain. Think about Psalm 136. We've sung Psalm 136 here. We do Psalm 136 sometimes in hymn sings. Psalm 136 repeats the refrain, the Lord's mercy endures forever, 26 times in 26 verses. I would argue that is not vain repetition. In fact, that is incredibly helpful repetition because that repetition is drilling truth down into our hearts, truth that we need. It's been said that repetition is the mother of all learning. So if you want to get good at math, you repeat the multiplication tables again and again and again. If you want to become a good free throw shooter, what do you do? You go out in the driveway and you shoot a million free throws the exact same way. So you've got a routine down. That's how you become a good free throw shooter. You ritualize it. You turn it into a ritual. You use the exact same form again and again and again. Well, so it is here. God uses repetition in his word, in the liturgy that he's given to us. There's repetition in worship. We do the same things the same way again and again and again, because this trains us and shapes us in his truth. So not all repetition is vain. Likewise, not all ritual is empty. It is true. Sometimes the prophets attacked the worship of ancient Israel for their formalism. For having the externals and nothing else. But note, the prophets are not attacking ritual per se. The problem is not the rituals God gave to his people. The problem is their hearts. It's not the rituals that are empty. It's their hearts that are empty. The prophets are not attacking the rituals God gave to Israel. They're attacking the misuse of those rituals. An ungodly reliance upon those rituals. The answer to empty ritual is not doing away with ritual. The answer to empty ritual is full ritual. Doing the rituals with hearts full of faith. 
Understand, and, and Revelation and so much else in the New Testament shows us this, the shift from Old Covenant to New Covenant, as we move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, that is not a shift from external to internal, as if internals didn't matter under the Old Covenant. That's obviously false. And as if externals don't matter in the New Covenant. They most certainly do. Externals continue to matter. Baptism matters. The Lord's Supper matters. Hymnody matters. Liturgy matters. Even preaching is really an external thing. We use a paper and ink book, a physical object. And when the word is preached, that's sound waves that go out from the preacher's mouth and enter into your ear and go down your your auditory canal and, 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 and into your brain. Preaching works from the outside in. It's an external thing. It's an external that transforms the internal. That's how God works, outside in. The reality is you cannot really have a relationship that is purified of ritual. Some people think, oh, I want a relationship with God purified of all ritual. Well, you can't have that. Men, what would your relationship with your wife be like without any ritual? What if you never repeated those words, I love you, because you said them once before and you don't want them to become rote? You don't want them to become vain repetition? I don't think she'd like that too much. I think she likes to hear those words again and again. What if you never celebrated her birthday or celebrated an anniversary? Because those are rituals. See, the reality is a relationship without any ritual has no structure and therefore it loses meaning quickly. You cannot sustain any relationship without ritual. How would we even get to know each other without the rituals of saying hello and shaking hands? Rituals shape our whole lives. Rituals organize our lives. Think about trying to do a wedding without any ritual. You couldn't even recognize it as a wedding. The rituals are what make it identifiable as a wedding ceremony. See, rituals are not tacked on to life as an optional extra. They structure and organize our lives. They reveal the meaning of key events in our lives. You know, animals go through the same basic life cycle as humans. They're born, they mate, they die. What makes humans special is that we ritualize these occasions. And in fact, there is nothing more human than this because we are made in God's image and God is a ritual God, a God of order and patterns and repetition. Ritual reveals that. Ritual structures and organizes our lives. G.K. Chesterton has a great line. It's really a great section, but just one line out of it. Chesterton says, it's not some automatic necessity, not some law of nature that makes every daisy look alike. He says, no, actually, God makes each daisy individually and just never gets tired of making them. And that's a beautiful thought. God is a God of ritual. Well, I want to close out this morning by giving you a few reasons why TPC is a liturgical church. Obviously, this is one of the first things you notice about our church if you come visit us on a Sunday. Why do we do many of the same things again and again, week after week? Why do we have this participatory, ritualized form of worship? I want to give you a few reasons. This won't be exhaustive, but I want to help you think about this biblically. First, ritualized liturgical worship trains us in the disciplines and habits of faithful living. 
Uh, Jonathan Edwards said, holy affections consist in holy habits. If you want to cultivate holy affections in your life, holy loves, you need to develop holy habits. Good example of this is in parenting. Good parents seek to teach their children manners. So you parents, you teach your child to say thank you, and you teach them to say thank you whether they feel like it or not. Because you want to develop the habit, you want to cultivate that habit, and you're also hopeful that by saying thank you when they should, they'll come to feel thankful when they should if they don't already. So, why do you think in the liturgy we include those words, thanks be to God, after most every reading? We have a reading of Scripture, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Why? Well, the liturgy is training you in manners. The liturgy is training you to be thankful for God's word. And all of it, not just the parts you like, but even the parts that are hard to hear. Thanks be to God for his word. See, the liturgy is creating grooves for our hearts to run in, tracks for our minds to follow. That's one thing. The liturgy trains us in virtuous habits. Second, the liturgy, liturgical forms allow the liturgy to become so familiar that it can become second nature. This is why when somebody comes to visit our church for the first time, and they're like, oh, the people are nice, but the worship is so weird. I always say, give it six weeks. Come for six weeks, try your best to participate, and you'll start to get into it. You'll start to get the flow of it. It'll stop being so odd, and it'll start to become second nature. See, liturgy, its it's routines, its repetition, allow you to stop focusing on the details of the service or to stop focusing on the efficient and to simply focus your attention on God. C.S. Lewis is so helpful here, as he so often is. Listen to what Lewis says. The advantage of a fixed form of service is that we know what is coming. Extemporaneous public prayer has this difficulty. We don't know whether we can mentally join in until we've heard it. It might be phony or heretical. We are therefore called to carry on a critical and devotional activity at the same moment, two things that are hardly compatible. Now, I think that need to be critical is greatly lessened when you know the one praying extemporaneously and you trust them to lead you. But his point is there's something helpful about a set prayer form. Listen to what he goes on to say about his view of liturgy. He says, I think our business as laymen is to take what we are given liturgically and to make the best of it. And I think we should find this a great deal easier if what we were given was always and everywhere the same. Novelty simply as such can only have an entertainment value. And people don't go to church to be entertained. They go to use the service or, if you prefer, to enact it. Every service is a structure of acts and words through which we receive a sacrament or repent or supplicate or adore. And it enables us to do these things best. If you like, it works best when, through long familiarity, we don't have to think about any of it. As long as you notice and have to count the steps, you're not yet dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes or light or print or spelling. The perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. But every novelty prevents this. It fixes our attention on the service itself. And thinking about worship is different from worshiping. Novelty may fix our attention, not even on the service, but on the celebrant. What on earth is he up to now will intrude. It lays one's devotion to waste. 
there is really some excuse for the man who said, and I love this line, I wish they remembered that the charge to Peter was feed my sheep, not try experiments on my rats, or even teach my performing dogs new tricks. But how much of the church is doing that every Sunday, trying to run experiments on the rats or teach the dogs new tricks? Thus, Lewis says, my whole liturgiological position really boils down to an entreaty for permanence and uniformity. I can make do with almost any kind of service, whatever, if only it will stay put. But if each form is snatched away just when I am beginning to feel at home in it, then I can never make any progress in the art of worship. You give me no chance to acquire the trained habit. That's Lewis. You know, John Calvin said basically the same thing. And when Lewis and Calvin agree, you better pay attention. This is Calvin. Calvin said, I highly approve that there be a certain form of worship from which ministers not be allowed to vary. That first, some provision may be made to help the simplicity and unskillfulness of some. Secondly, that the consent and harmony of the churches with one another may appear. And lastly, that the capricious giddiness and levelty of novelty may be prevented. Calvin says if we all worship the same way, it will show our unity. Uh, it will prevent unskilled pastors from corrupting a service. And it will keep us focused, our, focusing our attention on God and not on the novelties. So there again is a benefit. Third, liturgy is the best possible form of cradle-to-grave pastoral care a church can provide for its people. Liturgy is the best possible form of cradle-to-grave pastoral care this church or any church can give you. Think about it from the cradle up. Children who cannot yet read can learn parts of the liturgy. And you'll hear them joining in with us every Sunday. They know the postures. They know when to kneel. They know the prayers and can join in. They know the service music and even a lot of the hymns they can learn even before they can read. Likewise, older people who have lost their mental faculties, who maybe can no longer follow a sermon as well, but who have been doing the liturgy for years, can still participate and still be blessed as well. Liturgy slowly shapes us over the course of a lifetime like water running over a rock. And finally, liturgy connects us to the past and to the future. See, we're not the first Christians and we won't be the last. We stand on the shoulders of giants and we hope to give rise to an even greater generation of giants in the future. The Christian faith does not get reinvented in every generation. No, it gets preserved and defended in every generation. We're not trying to reinvent the Christian faith in every generation. That's a recipe for disaster. This is frankly why we sing a lot of older hymns. Uh, These are songs that have stood the test of time. Now, there are some great newer hymns as well. We try to work those in. But I think it's wonderful when on any given Sunday we are singing hymns that span the generations. Think about this. When we sing a song, you are probably singing a song that was written about 3,000 years ago. The Psalms are roughly about 3,000 years old. Singing a variety of hymns from different places geographically and different eras in history is truly Catholic. It reminds us God has been at work among many different peoples in many different times and places. These songs have sustained their faith and they will sustain our faith as well. Much of what we use in our liturgy is either straight out of the Bible or it comes from very ancient sources. 
So, for example, the words we use in the liturgy, the sursum corda, lift your hearts up to the Lord. Those words have been used by Christians since at least the third century to reflect that whole notion of ascension into the heavenly sanctuary. The words we use before the Lord's Supper, where we talk about angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, that also goes back to at least the third century to the liturgy of Hippolytus. And it's really right out of Revelation. It's right out of Hebrews chapter 12. The words of the Sanctus, holy, 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 obviously goes back to the, to the book of Revelation. We saw that this, this morning. In fact, it even goes back to the prophet Isaiah, who lived 800 years before Jesus was born. In fact, it even goes further back than that. We know the angels have been singing this from the very moment of their creation. We're joining in with that song that has been sung from the dawn of creation. The creeds we recite that really summarize the gospel, that summarize the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, once a year today, the Athanasian Creed, they all go back to the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. It's interesting to me that Southern Christians in particular have an aversion to liturgy, to ritual in Christian worship. Because, you know, as Southerners, we really don't have the same aversion in other areas of life. You go to any other area of life, and Southerners are generally very happy with tradition and proud of tradition. Go to any SEC stadium on a Saturday in the fall, and you will find yourself immersed in a secular liturgy full of rites and rituals that are practically considered sacred, that must not be touched or changed. There are vestments that the players and a lot of the fans wear. There are pregame rituals like an eagle circling the stadium. There are songs and chants and cheers that get passed on for generations and that are used to catechize children into particular loyalties. Could it be that Southerners really do have liturgical worship services? They just take place on Saturdays rather than Sundays? Is that possible? Let me close with a story of how God does his work on us through the liturgy, how God works from the outside in, from the external to the internal, how the rituals of the liturgy can shape us and engrave truth in our bodies and in our souls. This is from Lauren Winter's memoir about her spiritual growth and development during her college years. And listen to what she has to say. Sometimes I think I've come up with something poetic. One day when I was full in the flush of agony about what I should do with my life, whether I would always be alone, whether I should become a nun, whether I should drop out of graduate school and other high-pitched anxieties, I heard reverberating around in my brain, do the work I have given you to do. The work I have given you to do. The work I have given you to do. What an ingenious sentiment, I thought. I can't believe I dreamed that up. Maybe I should drop out of grad school and enter a poetry writing Masters of Fine Arts program. All day, all week, I heard those words, the work I have given you to do. I heard them and was deeply consoled by them, sure that God had given me work to do, that he had sent me out into the world to do it, that he even woke me up too early in the morning to do that work. It was mine. I was consecrated to it, and it was given of him. I heard those words all week, and I felt peaceful. Not only had God given me work to do, he had given me a little poetic snatch of reassurance as well. Then I got to church on Sunday. We opened with a hymn. The pastor processed in. We prayed the prayer of the day. We read three passages from Scripture. The pastor gave a rousing sermon about forgiveness. We sang some more. We prayed the prayers for the people. We exchanged the peace. The pastor consecrated the Eucharist, and we received it. Then we said the prayer of thanksgiving. 
We thank you for receiving us as living members of your son. And there, in the middle of that prayer, the words that God had given me all week. And now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do. It was the liturgy that had lodged in my brain. Words of the liturgy, I barely noticed Sunday to Sunday when we said them. But here I was noticing them rapidly in the middle of a weekday afternoon when I needed them the most. The church fathers had a saying, Lex orendi, Lex credendi. As we worship, so we believe. Our worship practices shape our faith, which then shapes how we live. You can move straight from the liturgy to how you live the Christian life. Liturgy is habit forming. And that means that if you have a faithful liturgy, you will form faithful habits. And if you form faithful habits, you will have faithful character. And that really is the goal of the Christian life. God serves us in the liturgy. God transforms us through the liturgy in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.